going to be a really, really good uh, day, and uh, I, I'm, I'm so excited about what God is going to do and what God is going to move in our hearts. And so let's get into God's word. Father, we pray that you would speak to us. God, stir our hearts in ways that maybe we didn't plan, in ways that, we are, that come unexpected in our life. God rushed over each person here, every single person person in the sound of my voice, every single person watching online, every single person, God, move in their life in the most surprising way, I pray this morning, with your grace, with your love. Amen. It almost goes without saying anymore, we live in a crazy world. I mean, you look around and you're thinking, good Lord, what is, what is going on? Things are just... Uh, seemingly more and more out of control. But in contrast to that is what God is doing in your life and God is doing in this place and in what God is doing in the world. And you need to understand that, even as crazy as, as the world is. I, uh, <clears throat> I was reading an article that there's a, I won't go into names because we don't need to know that, and you certainly wouldn't know the name, but there, there is a website out there that actually promotes adultery. It, it, it promotes it in the sense that it allows people, in fact, its slogan is something like, life is short, have an affair. It's a true story. It's out there. And you look at that and you just think, oh, how crazy is that? In fact, they did a poll. Uh, they found the most cities where this goes on in America. It's, it's not too surprising, but the top five, or yes, right here in Florida. <laughs> The number one city for evidently having an affair is Miami. Number two, yeah, Miami, can't believe it. And number two is Orlando, but we come in really strong at number five in Tampa. Isn't that crazy? It just, you look at that and you think, what, what, what is going on? And when there's pushback, this is what was interesting. When there's pushback against this, they say, why are you doing this? You know, you're promoting affairs and things. And their response is simply this. No, we're not promoting it. This is our society. This is our culture. It's already out there. Whether we do it or not, it, it's out there. And that in, just intrigued me, that thinking that this is who we are. This is what we're doing, whether it's true or not. And, and sometimes we need to understand that the culture we used to have or the culture that we thought we have is, is, uh, might have been good, but the culture that we're living in now is against Christ. It's not the Christ culture. And we have to be willing to live what I call a counterculture life. A counter, now, counterculture is really interesting. This, that terminology was always used for the, the rebels, you know, the, 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 that, that pushed against society and pushed against norms and, and things like that. But now our society is so crazy and so out there that we are the counterculture. We are the, to live for Christ. To live in the things that God wants to do in our life, we have to understand, we have to live this counterculture life. It's not easy going against it. It's not. It's not easy going against the whole culture that you live in. It's like swimming upstream. <laughs> That's really difficult to do. It made me think of the, the salmon, right? They, they swim upstream and, and give every bit of their last bit of energy to find the one spot so they can reproduce. And I think there's a spiritual lesson in that. We have to swim upstream if we're going to reproduce. 
spiritually. If we're going to see growth, if we're going to see growth in our life, if we're going to see growth in others, if we're going to see, we're going to have to learn how to swim upstream. Everybody's going that way. And the whole world saying everybody does this. It's all good. It's all the same. Let's go this way. And we're going to have to say, no, 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 no. We're going to have to swim upstream. We're going to have to, to be different. You see, our natural tendency in this world is to cling for every day, to fight for every day. I want this day. I want the next day. And we do put things in our body, and we rearrange our face, and we do everything we can to try to feel like I can live one more day. We do everything to cling to one more day when ultimately all the days are going to be spent and we will be in eternity. Eternity is where we'll live. Eternity is who we are. Eternity is, is what makes us up. This is, world is important. It's, it's, it's essential. It matters a lot. In fact, what we choose here is going to make a big difference on our eternities and what we do and, and how we live. But going against that, that culture, that stream, is not easy. And sometimes we think, I want to be like the, I want to be like the early church, you know, the revival and God, the Holy Spirit pulled out. But you realized the first century Roman world that the Christian church was born into was very counter to the Christian way of life, to the way that Jesus taught. It was, it was just, just the complete opposite. And we, we see that in Scripture, although we don't always pay attention to it, of how different it is. The early church had to deal with a counterculture. How do we deal with this counterculture? In fact, you have in Acts the Holy Spirit being poured out, the church being born, thousands added to the church, everybody happy, everybody sharing. And the first two things that are talked about after that are cultural or countercultural moments the church had to deal with. In fact, they're very much similar to what we deal with even to this day, which is probably why they included it in the Scripture. The second uh, counterculture moment that they dealt with was bias, was prejudice in the early church with the first Christians. <laughs> it, it, it dealt with, and it wasn't even between uh, uh, one race or another. It was even within the, the, the Israel, within Jews. So we had the Hellenistic Jews. That means any Jew that was that was born outside of the Israel area that had more of a Greek influence. And we had the Hebrew Jews that were born there that considered themselves a little bit better than the Hellenistic Jew because obviously they've been corrupted. <laughs> so they had this tension within the church, a bias, a prejudice within the very church because the widows for the Hellenistic Jews weren't being taken care of. In fact, all the resources were going to the Hebrew Jews, <laughs> the, the, the Hebrew widows. And so they had this tension and they had to create... Deacons, the reason we have deacons now or elders or people like that was because of this very reason. They said, this is crazy, we can't deal with this. And they, and like Stephen and, and all these others were appointed to deal with this and say, this, we have to live counterculture. So from the very moment that church began, they were dealing with the culture thinks this way, we have to go opposite. We have to live differently. The very first, though, the very first counterculture moment that we find in Acts, was about, as you guess, if it's not prejudice, it's about money. <laughs> it's, about, it's about generosity. It's about how do we handle our life. That's the very first counterculture moment that they dealt with, that they had to, uh, to deal with in life. And 
But it's not just about money. If you look close, we're going to see it. Look, examine a little bit close. It was, it was really about thanks and a thanksgiving heart and, a, and appreciation. And it, was, it, was, it was something that was, it, it's just not about what they gave and what they didn't give. It's about the kind of heart that they had and they had. You know, Thanksgiving's coming up Thursday. Real excited. Woo, you know, pumpkin pie. I just couldn't wait. I went out and bought a cherry pie last night. I just couldn't wait. I'm sorry. I'm just like, like I know, and I enjoyed it. I just had a little sliver. Anyway, it was, it was Thanksgiving's coming up. Totally, I fought a pie and everything just went out in my head. <laughs> Holy Spirit just left, anointing and everything. Who would think that pie would, 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 would break the anointing? No, nothing, by the way, breaks the anointing. It's just God's way of getting us back to the things. Thanksgiving is coming up. Do you realize, of course we know Thanksgiving was, the first moment was about uh, the, the, the early pilgrims saying thank you. Saying thank you, breaking the bias to the, the Native Americans here saying, we're here because you helped us. A little, a little bit later, George Washington declared, we should have a day of Thanksgiving after the Revolutionary War because we are thankful for what God has done. So he said, God has been with us, God has helped us, so we should have a day of Thanksgiving. But it wasn't until Abraham Lincoln that he declared an official Thanksgiving a national holiday, but he did it in the middle of the Civil War. So it's interesting that the, the times that Thanksgiving was declared was one for God kept us out of, from this war, and then here, in the middle of the war, we need to stop and say thank you. <laughs> it's devastating, it's horrible, and it's, it's the death that was everywhere. Abraham Lincoln says, we need to just stop and say, God, thank you for being with us. Somehow, somehow, help us through this. And I think that's interesting how key thanksgiving should play in our hearts and most certainly plays in our Christian walk, in our Christian life. You see, we need to learn how to choose to say thank you. We need to choose to be thankful for what God is doing. So this morning I want to talk about I choose thankful. I choose thankful. A counterculture thanksgiving. And I'm going to be as practical with you this morning as I can because I believe this is what God is telling us. We need to understand to be thankful is a counterculture moment because that's not the way the world, they put up a facade, but that's not how the world thinks. That's not how the world lives. Do you realize that the very first message to the church, the very first uh, uh, ordained word of God that came to the early church is found in the in first Thessalonians if chronologically if you look at what was the very first thing written to the early church what was the very first thing that became the word of God as it was written to the early church and that's first Thessalonians it was the first thing written before even any of the gospels it was uh, Paul wrote it to the early church to the church at Thessalonica and the surrounding churches and if you look at that you find something really interesting then you say, okay, well, if that's the first letter, if that's the first message, what's the first word? What's the first thing that God said, this is what I need the church to know. This is important to live. This is the first thing that I need you to understand, and it was the first issue dealt with is thanks. Having a thankful heart. Because it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2, we always, everyone say always, we always thank God for all of you, for the church. That's what he began. That's the tone. That's the theme. That's everything. 
He says, I'm going to begin by just saying, thank you. I always, always, always give thanks for you. I always, always give thanks. And I want to begin that way this morning. Thank you. I wish I could call your name. I could. But I would fe- my fear would be that I would leave out one. <laughs> and they wouldn't feel thanked. But I, as a pastor, as your pastor, say thank you. The, the, the group we had here Tuesday night to do all this decorating and, and such, and even online, you can't appreciate everything because you need to be here. But that's not the point. Uh, the, 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 the sacrifice that people make, Everything that you see from the stage being built and carpeted and things like that and, and all the decoration and everything, and is, it comes because of sacrifice. Every comes because people did something. The church. So Paul begins by saying, thank you. And I thought that would be appropriate for me to begin before I teach you anything or show you anything from Scripture to say, thank you. Thank you, every one of you. Thank you for what you do. Someone was here yesterday looking and doing different things and working with me, and I'm thinking, you know, God is just so good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. But First Thessalonians, it's really interesting, doesn't just begin with thanks. It actually ends with thanks. First Thessalonians are great. If you, it's filled with doctrine because it's the first thing that God says, okay, church, grab this, right? So you just go back in this week and just read First Thessalonians over and over because it actually deals with eschatology at the end because they were all freaking out asking about, you know, like I, I think now we're so tuned in to everything going on in the Middle East saying, oh, is this the end? Is, is Christ coming back now? What does this mean? Armageddon? And if, if I've heard the word Armageddon and Gog and Magog and all those things, I've never heard more of it than I do now. And it seems to be on everyone's lips. But there's a piece about that. And First Thessalonians will give you that. God is in control. Come on, listen to me. God's got it. God has this, but it begins with thank you, thanks, living thanks, having a culture of thanks, and it ends with thanks. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5.18. It says, give thanks, which is about the last verse in the book. So the first book says, come on, we are thankful, live thankful. It ends with give thanks in all their circumstances. So it's moved to I thank you to, okay, now you live thankful. Now that you've understood this, now that I've taught you this in 1 Thessalonians, you live thankful. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's easy. We got that, right? Every circumstance. Good, good, good ones. Bad, bad, bad ones. Hard, hard, hard ones. Easy. In all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. The most popular question in over my lifespan of ministry has been, this question, what is God's will for me? What is God's will? And you know what they're saying? What should I do? How, what should I do? How do, I, how do I live that? And here we are. It tells us in the very first thing written to the church, I'll tell you what God's will is. And I love to do this. It's never what they want to hear. <laughs> but they go, oh, what's God's will? What should I do? God's will is for you to give thanks in this middle of this crisis and circumstances and difficulty and struggle. That's God's will. You do that, you're golden. It will work out. You can trust God. No matter what it is, if you just learn to say, God, thanks. <laughs> this is really hard. Oh, this is really hard. But thank you. Do that, and you will know God's will. You will figure out what God's will is. Because that is choosing to say thank you. 
in the midst of all these things, choosing to say thank you no matter how hard it is. And you think, well, why is thankfulness so important? Well, in our life. Because unthankfulness always, always, always divides. It is the division. If there is a division in the home, I guarantee you it started or began or there's a string through it of just unthankfulness. You don't appreciate me. You don't see me. You don't honor me. Whatever. There's this unthankfulness that, that goes through. And if we find it in churches, you know, where we, we, we don't appreciate uh, or are thankful what God has or what God has given us. It's just, it's just easy to do. It's in our society. It's in our politics. It's everywhere where it wars start over unthankfulness. So how much more should we learn to say, okay, God, I choose thankfulness. I choose to live a thankful life. So we have this amazing example at the beginning of the early church where this man named Barnabas, and his name means encourager, his name means I, I, I have a thankful heart. So he comes and he sells a piece of property and he gives all the money to the church. And the church is amazed. And everyone is like, whoa. You've got to catch the nuance of what Barnabas just did. Because the Bible says that Barnabas was a Levite. Now, what is the one thing that we know about Levites? They're that tribe, that, that, that people, that group that, of Israel. The one thing we know is that they're not allowed to own land. They don't have any land because they're supposed to be supported by all the other tribes that help them. So somewhere along the line, as things moved into the New Testament, all that changed. The culture changed. They didn't support the Levites, so the Levites had to do the land. Whatever, whatever it is, there's just brokenness. And the first century church, Jewish people, weren't living by that anymore. They didn't follow that anymore. Because here is Barnabas, and they don't, even, they don't even mention the fact that he has land. <laughs> Here's Barnabas, he has a land, but he sells the land and gives everything to God, which is this amazing, beautiful picture of God's restoration, of who he was supposed to be in God, and now in Christ it is completed. Oh, just such a great picture. And the church was amazed. And everyone saw that and thought, wow, that's awesome. That is incredible. I want to be like that. I want to I do that. You see his, his thankful heart being poured out. He was, he was generous in what he did. Then we have a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who see this and think, I can do that. And so they come, sell a piece of property. That was theirs. And they give the money. But they lie to the Holy Spirit. They lie to God. And they said, this is all the money that we got from the, uh, from the property. And Peter goes, dude, you have no idea how close you are to not being here. This is, it was your choice, right? You, you could have kept the money, sold the land, kept the money. We don't care. You could have kept the, the and gave it only part of the money to us. That's fine. You, but you... But you could have gave it all and said, but you cannot lie to the Holy Spirit. He's gone, dead. Wife comes back in after him, and he says, tell us what's going on. Is this true? Is this, is this right? She does the same thing. You see, and, and you could be really, we were pretty harsh on Ananias and Sapphira, you know. 
mothers and fathers name their kids. All kinds of things out of the Bible. But the two names they don't use, you know, they, they, they don't do Rahab the harlot. Maybe there's a Rahab. God redeemed her. She became a princess, so that's okay. But usually Ananias and Sapphira, that's not one, you know. That's, that's not one that they, that they, they do. Because, and so we're pretty harsh on them. But you understand that they were just following their custom. This was their culture. This is all they knew. This is what they were uh, reinforced over and over. This is how you live. This is how you gave. This is what you did. It, because giving was always to be thanked, never to give thanks. The, in, in first century, government didn't provide anything. <laughs> the wealthy did. And so if they needed a waterwork or needed a well or needed something like that, someone, in the, someone who was wealthy had to step up and say, okay, I'll pay for that. But the reason he does that or she did that and this is the way that women became powerful as well, is to donate things, is to give things, things so that they can be thanked, so that they would get reelected, or so they would be noticed, so they'd have their name on it, whatever, so they can be. So giving, as a culture, as a society, ingrained in them, you give so that you can be thanked, not so that you can give thanks. This is who they were. This was the, the culture. This is how they lived. They were used to living this way. This is how Rome was, was set up. You know, and we're not far from that. <laughs> you know, you, you see the mayor of New York saying, we're going to have to cut everything, we don't have money, so he's going to the wealthy to help them pay for things. It's going on right now so that they will be thanked. <laughs> it's not about just doing it. It's not about seeing the need and doing it. It's about understanding how to live thanks and how to live thankful. We have senators in our own country, in our thing, that go, go in huge debt to because it takes $100 million to get elected as a senator, even from a small state, much less something like Florida. And then they go, and then they always leave as millionaires, multi-multi-millionaires. Why? It's because they give to get. Not blaming all of them. Not even picking on them. I'm just saying that's our culture. There was a very famous senator in the first century Rome, and uh, he was accused and was, was banished because he cheated so much. But the history records, it wasn't because he cheated so much and he got, was so greedy. It's like he just did it too much. <laughs> he, he, he was the worst of the worst. He was, he was, everybody does it. And if he had just stole a little bit and cheated a little bit and gotten just a little bit of, of money back to him, everyone would have been, that's fine, because that's the way society went. But he just did over the top. <laughs> he, was, he just did too much and became political football, but that's just beside the point. You see, that's our culture, even now, our culture, is to, is, to, is to understand that it's about what can I be and what can I do. Now, what's really interesting is that Luke, when he's writing Acts, uses a very interesting word and basically said that Ananias and Sapphira stole from God. You're thinking, how did they steal from God? Lying, we understood, that what they, but how do they steal from God? This same word is used in the Old Testament, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. It was used of Achan. When all of the wealth of uh, Jericho was to be given and used only for God, he took some of it and buried it in his tent. And the correlation and the connection and the similar stories about, about what happened to Achan and how God punished him and his whole family and his extended family, okay, uh, it is 
runs parallel to what we see going on in the New Testament. But even with all that, this is a question I get asked. Isn't that a little harsh? Come on. <laughs> Come on. Isn't that a little bit harsh that God would judge Ananias and Sapphira like this? Yeah. But that's the wrong question. The question is not, wasn't God too harsh? The question was, wasn't God too merciful? And you're going, what? How is that possible? How is, how is God too merciful instead of too harsh? If you look closely at this story, you find something amazing. After this happened, it says that the people were, they weren't surprised. Oh, can't believe that happened. I thought they were such good people. <laughs> you know, that's when the mass murderer you know, shows up in your next door neighbor and you think, I never knew it. He just seemed so nice. You know, he got my mail for me and everything. He said, I, I, they weren't surprised. They, they, it wasn't that they were puzzled. Oh, why would that happen? They weren't a, you know what they were? They were afraid. You've got to stop and think that, about that a minute. They were afraid? They were afraid. Why would they be afraid that God judged an unthankful heart, that God judged stealing? Because if you think of it, most likely what happened was that Ananias and Sapphira said, I'm going to sell this property and give all the money to the church. And then they sold the property and they thought, what? Look how much money we got. <laughs> no one expects us to get that much, so we're just going to give this much. So they had broke a vow. They broke a promise. This was God's because they had dedicated it to God. So God judges them and everyone says, why? Why are you so harsh? Why were they afraid? Except... They probably did the same thing. Why would you be afraid? Why would you think, I don't know, like, if, if, if this wasn't you, then you would do And this is the whole church we're talking about. This is what I'm talking about. The counterculture that's there. From the very beginning of the church, we have to live a different way. We have to think a different way. We can't behave the same way as the rest of the world. We have to be different. Don't shrink away from it. Look what it says in Acts chapter 5. And just two verses in 12 and 13. It says that the apostles and all the believers, the church, used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade in, a, in, a, in, in the part of the temple. That's where they had church. They used to do that. But now, right after this, this is right after what just happened, no one else dared to even join them. No one joined, no one, the church, dared to even join the apostles when they prayed. Even though they were highly regarded, they were still by the people, they were because they were afraid, because that's not their culture. This is the early church, folks. These are the ones that we say, oh, we've got to be like the early church, which we do. But the early church had to deal with the fact we have to live counterculture. We cannot live uh, like the world lives. We can't just accept this is the way the world lives. This is who we are. We have to think differently. We have to think and behave counterculturally. Because your counterculture actions and your thankfulness will change everything. Your counterculture honesty will surprise people. What? I remember the time I, I uh, bought some groceries a long, long time ago, before kids or anything. Bought some groceries and bought some milk and then realized that you didn't scan it yourself in those days. People actually did it for you. Oh, we missed those. Anyway, so they, they, scanned, they scanned it and they missed it. There was a whole gallon of milk that they, they didn't ring up. 
And so I got to the car and realized, look at the receipt, because there's something, something right. oh. So I walked back in with a gallon of milk so they can ring it up and said, oh, you missed this. The, the lady behind the counter, mouth fell open. And this was back in the olden days when I was young. <laughs> Imagine now. Imagine now. They, your honesty will surprise them. It will shock them. Your kindness will win them. When you don't have to be kind. When no one expects you to be kind. When, they, when they, you order a well-done burger and it comes back and it comes raw. And then we point out at the end and he sees it and says, oh, that was a little wrong. And, and then we say, that's okay. Don't worry about it. I understand. It's all good. No, you should jump up and down and demand and have a new one. I just read in your report, I was, I was telling uh, some people earlier that how the Gen Z are responsible, this w one area, or that the, the $100 billion has been lost. Let me put it this way. $100 billion has been lost to our uh, economy because people lie and cheat saying that the package they received, they didn't get a hundred billion dollars. Can you even imagine that? I can't, I can't, it doesn't even fathom. I mean, some of you work for me, you go, yeah, I get that, I understand that. But wow, that's crazy, a hundred billion dollars. And then they did this research and found out that the Gen Z, they pick on poor Gen Z. That's just fun, that's just the worst generation ever. Because they, because they're the end, the Gen Z, I don't know. So they, they, they pull them and they found that a third of just the Gen Z a third said, yes, they have lied and reported that they did not receive something when they really did. You know, you got to be, it's a proactive lie. If you, didn't, if, if you get it and you say you didn't, you got to call someone, you got to ring someone up, you got to do something, you got to be, it's like, and you just think, wow, that's crazy. That is, but that's our world. That's what they expect us to live. We cannot live that way. We have to live with a heart of thanksgiving. We have to live with a heart that is completely different and act different and behave different. That's what it means to choose thankfulness. That's what it means to have a counterculture thanksgiving. This thanksgiving is to say, when your family are being jerks, <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. When, when well, that hit a chord. When, when you don't have to be, to run against the culture and say thank you. Because there's nothing that will change. Because thankfulness will see people saved. I'm convinced of it. Having a thankful, thankful heart. And you think, well, Greg, how can I fight against this culture? How can I stand? It seems like I try and try and try and it just doesn't, doesn't, doesn't really work out. First Corinthians, I'll just end with this. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about Christ coming back. Oh, what a day that will be. He just talked, and I love it because he says, then, he says, then victory, then the, the sting of death will be gone. Then it'll be over when we're changed, when he comes back. What a day, what an incredible day. But then he understands the counterculture that we go up against and ends with this verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He says, my dear church, come on, people, stand firm. Let nothing move you. 
always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Because, 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 you know that your effort, that your labor, that your love, that your kindness, that your thankfulness in the Lord is not in It's going to make a difference. Saying, feeling, not just it as a platitude. Thank you. This Thursday makes a difference. Turns everything around. I received a letter from a dear friend who runs a ministry for closed countries that don't have the gospel in it. And he received a letter from a Christian brother who had been persecuted, had done all this work and built this underground network within this, this area to reach the lost and have some people saved. You know, just incredible work. And all of it had come undone. All of it had been destroyed in the last several days. Everything had just fallen apart. And they, the Christians that he had brought to the Lord were being tortured and even killed. But he put this verse... 1 Corinthians 15, 58, in his letter. Because he says, even with all of that, it's not in vain. Because this brother, this Christian, is Palestinian and lives in the Gaza Strip. And Hamas had found his network and tore it all apart, killed, tortured in Palestine, in, 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 in Gaza, and had taken these Christian brothers and they're putting them, and sisters, and putting them in the very front line and using them as human shields. The IDF are coming in, they don't know. And they're dying. Brothers and Christians. Brothers and sisters dying for the Lord. You know, and I'm thinking, oh dear God, if he can say it's not in vain, if he can say it's not over, if he can say God saw the work and somehow, some way, even if we all die, God's going to do this, how much more can we live thankful? How much more can we say, God, in this place, in this time, in this era, where we are, God, thank you. And say a prayer for them as well. Because that's what's going to change the world. So that's my challenge. It's as simple and as practical as I can be. Come on. Let's live with a thankful heart. You've gone up against the wall. Feel like you can't change. Feel like it's all in vain. Just have a thankful heart. Give thanks instead of expecting to be thanked. Run against the culture and, and, and live the Christ culture that says, God, thank you. In all circumstances, thank you. Father, I thank you for this day. And God, we love you so much. God, I just pray you would encourage every single person here that it's not in vain. Every effort, every step they take, every moment they trust, every kind word they give, every extension of love that they give, they just rebuff back or, or whatever it is, God, every moment, God, it's not in vain because you measure it all. You take every bit of the tears and you bottle it up, God. You have every moment of faith that we stand in. And God, we trust you. I trust you for people that we're praying for. I trust you, God, for those that are loved ones around us. We trust you. We love you so much. God, teach us how to say thank you, how to live thank you, 
how to live against this culture that says it's about getting thanked instead of to say thank you. God, I pray for that. Lord, if there's anybody in the sound of my voice that does not know you, that has not surrendered their heart to you, that can't say, God, thank you for saving my soul, God, I pray right now, right here, in the sound of my voice, that they say, God, forgive me, that they receive you into their life and confess you with their mouth. God, I thank you for that soul. I thank you for that person listening. I thank you for that change and that transformation going on right there. And for every one of our lives, we say, thank you. In Jesus' name.